Good morning. My name is Alex, friend of Bryce's. I do ministry through uh, this church's denomination uh, at USC. And um, since I don't have a, a Sunday congregation, I'm always preaching the week after Easter somewhere. Uh, this just happened every year. Um, and uh, this morning, if, if you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, Luke 14. I'm not sure if the text is going to be on the screen or not, but uh, I'll read this for us. Um, Beginning in verse 7. Luke wrote this, Now he told, he being Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. For when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had invited him, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And then another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master came out of the house angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, but still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone wants to come after me, and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. Um, On the heels of uh, Easter, uh, if you accept the reality um, and adopt the reality that Jesus really walked out of the grave, And that he's living and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The question for the church and the question for us this morning then is what now? 
Uh, what do we do with the resurrection? What, how do we live in light of it? And uh, simply put, in this text, I think from the parables of Jesus, uh, the answer to the resurrection and Easter is that we follow him. Uh, there was a survey by the Pew uh, Research Company uh, uh, last year, still said almost 82% of Americans would identify themselves as a Christian. But yet only 27% can clearly say what it means to be a Christian. I think for many of us, what it means to be a Christian is that uh, we have received God into our heart. Uh, we have accepted his offer of forgiveness. Um, and while it's not less than that, uh, I think this text says what it really means to be a Christian is to follow the resurrected Jesus, is to follow him. So do you know what that means? Have you accepted that? So let's, if, if, uh, if you have, let's examine that and let's look at that with these three things. Uh, one, the call of Jesus. Two, the way of Jesus. Sort of what it looks like to follow him. And then three, uh, the hope of Jesus. Where do we get the resources to follow him? So first, uh, the call of Jesus. Uh, Jesus makes this uh, incredible radical statement about what it means to follow him in verse 11 when he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, and, but to really understand what he means uh, by that phrase, we've got to get the context uh, for Jesus telling these two parables. Because the power of what he's saying is really bound up in uh, the crowd and the, com- the context of what he's saying. And what we're told in the beginning of chapter 14, which we didn't look at, is that Jesus is eating dinner in a house, a very prominent person, a very wealthy community of people. And he looks around what's going on at this supper. And then he says, and Luke records this in verse 7, when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, that it's that phrase in that context where Jesus begins to enter in with his teaching on discipleship. Now, why is he doing this? Well, because in this society, everything in a Greco-Roman world there worked on the patronage system. And what that was, was a system of society where if you wanted uh, social success, financial success, what you would do is you would find somebody wealthy, uh, very socially connected, and you would uh, do everything you could in your power uh, with bribes or with favors um, to connect yourself to them so that they could open doors for you. Um, It was essentially like socially kissing up, that you find people who are connected, do whatever you can to get in their favor, and then they will open all the social and financial doors for you. And so what's going on at this dinner table when Jesus tells his parables is it's not just a dinner table happening. That these are social, financial life opportunities where people are coming together and figuring out how can these people advance my life in front of them. And it's in that context that Jesus begins to say something like he who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. But what make no mistake, what's going on with these people is that they are walking into a system and walking into a place and going, how can these people around me help me? There was an article uh, last year in the Daily Trojan at USC that talked uh, where this freshman was uh, expressing uh, the pressure and fear about how you get a career out of USC and what it takes and sort of the social anxiety that comes 
with pursuing internships, and they were talking about the upcoming career fair, and he mentioned this startling conversation, which was for him, that he had with a junior where he asked him, are you uh, nervous about the upcoming career fair? And the junior said no. And the freshman author said, how can, you, like, how can you not be nervous about this upcoming career fair? And he said, uh, well, because I've just been preparing my whole USC career for this. And the freshman responded, like, wait, wait, are you like telling me there's like, a class or a club that helps you ongoing uh, how to prepare yourself for these interviews and how to get these jobs and how to get these connections? And uh, the junior goes, no. He goes, I just, every party, Every time I hang out with somebody, everything's an interview. Everything's an opportunity to connect myself. And the freshman's like, what are you talking about? And the junior, this is the quote, he said, you mean to tell me that you've met people on this campus who don't think people are an opportunity for your own self-advancement? And that's what Jesus is entering into. Where people are looking at other people and saying, hey, 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 how can you help me? How can you advance my career? And Jesus comes and says, look, when you give a dinner, when you have a luncheon, do not invite your friends in verse 12, your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Rather, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now, what does he mean here? Okay, here's what Jesus does not mean. Um, Jesus is not saying you must not have friends as a Christian. He's not saying uh, you can't have a career. Uh, because there's a lot of people who hear this and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, I knew this about Christianity. This is what I hate is uh, I'm in finance or I'm in the entertainment industry and my whole career is about making connections and about connecting things. Uh, why does Christianity always have to be a roadblock to what my life is going to look like? What Jesus is saying here is he's using a classic Hebrew idiom where he's talking about something comparatively. And what he's not saying is that in order to be a Christian, you actually hate your parents or you hate your friends or you hate your other people or even you hate yourself. What he is saying is that in comparison to me and knowing me and the call of this kingdom is that in comparison, you must hate those things so that my, your devotion to me looks like it's so devoted. You're so following me that your love and care for those other things looks like you hate them. And what Jesus is really talking about here is he's saying to follow me, you must give me precedence over everything else. See, for many of us, living the Christian life in Southern California looks like giving all of our time and resources to our children, to our job, to our houses, to our social lives. And living the Christian life looks like fitting that in neatly where it's convenient and where, it's, where it works. And maybe even times where it helps us uh, portray the family that we want, maybe portray the social status that we want, uh, maybe fit in certain social circles with this moral compass or that moral compass. And, but when the kingdom says things that don't fit in our navigated, already pre-planned life, we sort of shove it to the side and say, that's really not my theology or not my approach to Christian life. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, in every part of life, in every aspect that you think is central, I must have precedence. 
One of the places I want to press you for 30 seconds about precedence is the way that you schedule your life. Because think about how we schedule our life uh, today. Uh, we schedule our life on what's uh, got priority and what's negotiable. And the things that are negotiable are always things that we think that are important. We always think you should, uh, other people should be doing these things. Um, like feeding the poor or uh, serving this church. Nobody here would probably say, we should never do that. That's a waste of time. Everybody thinks that should happen. We need that to happen. But often the way we plan our lives is we go, but I don't really have time for that. And what that we're saying there is that those kind of things are significant, but they're negotiable. And everything that's significant but negotiable does not have precedence in your life. And the radical call of the kingdom is that Jesus says, in everything, in everything, I must have precedence. Uh, when I was uh, growing up in high school, this is a total 90s story, by the way. Um, there was this print shop at the bottom of the mountain that I grew up on. And uh, I remember in the 90s, this was a cool thing that you could take something to this print shop and they would screen print it on a t-shirt for you. And so I thought it would be cool to take a CD cover that I really liked and thought was, uh, would make a good t-shirt and uh, said, hey, can you, can you print this CD cover on a t-shirt? And the guy said, sure, no problem. And then I thought, well, my friend Brad, uh, his birthday's coming up. I'll get two. I'll get one for him and one for me. So he made two for, uh, for me and gave them to me and said, hey, okay, there's very specific washing instructions for this. You've got to put it in this temperature on this cycle. And if you don't do it, it's going to ruin them. So I go home and wash the shirts. And one of them came out great and the other came out ruined. And you know what I said? Oh, man, Brad's T-shirt got ruined. <laughs> See, because almost always in life, it's always Brad's T-shirt. That when it comes to our children, when it comes to our resources, when it comes to our, appropriate, our personal life, it's almost always the other one. And look at the excuses that Jesus gives in, this, in the text. I just bought a field. I just bought five yoke of oxen. I just got married. You know what's fascinating about all of those excuses? They're all commended in the Proverbs. None of those are ever things mentioned about your own life that no one in your community would not commend. And see, here, here's what's really threatening to the call of the kingdom within the church. It's not the uncommendable things. It's the commendable things that no one in our life would ever challenge, that no one in our life would ever press back and think, why are you spending your time and resources on those things? Marriage is at the forefront of Scripture in terms of the foundation of how God wove the universe together. And Jesus is saying, listen, even in your marriage, if I don't have precedence, it's an idol and it's not about the kingdom. Now, let me pause real quick. Because this is a radical, radical call of Jesus that a lot of us think is maybe even burdensome and unfair. Why would Jesus do this? Well, I'll just say to you pastorally, you, you really want Jesus to call you this way. You, you really do want him to call you this sort of radical nature. I'll, I'll illustrate it to make it, sense, make it come home. Um, imagine, uh, 
your favorite musical artist. I don't know who that is for you. And uh, your spouse for your birthday gets you like almost front row tickets to the Hollywood Bowl. And you're going to go up and you've got this amazing uh, night planned of your favorite artist, unbelievable tickets. It's going to be fantastic. And you get there and your favorite artist comes up on stage and says, you know what, Um, tonight I'm just feeling charitable. And I really uh, don't want to hog the stage. And so that that opening act that came on for me, I'm just going to let them play half my set. You'd be furious. And you would feel robbed. And you would want your money back. Listen, a king who only wants half of the attention of your life is not a king worth following. It is a king who robs you of what you long for and are meant for in this world. But that's a radical call of the kingdom. That's the radical call. But secondly, let's look at the way of that call. What does it look like to actually embrace that call? Look, the main principle that Jesus is trying to communicate at the supper is that in order to follow him, you you really have to die to something. And uh, for the purpose of the parable, the radical call is the way that we die uh, to people around us. Because the people uh, in this banquet, what they're refusing to do is that they're refusing to think that the people who they would serve would actually be the way to freedom. And that what everyone thinks is that the way to freedom is the patronage system and to find the people who can advance my life and benefit my life. But, you know, for a second, let's, let's imagine Jesus not just calling us, but us benefiting from this call. Because all of us have sort of had a relationship with somebody who has used us personally. Who has seen what we had, seen what we can offer, and come to us and taken it from us. And then moved on. And it's felt like your soul was stripped. But what the call of the kingdom here is, is the way that we give radical precedence to Jesus. Is that we don't go to these wealthy people, we don't go to these wealthy situations and see what we can take from them. We go to things and we go to places and we go to people and we don't find what we can take, we find what we can give away. And most of the the most concrete place that that happens is with people who don't have anything to give you. And what Jesus is saying is here is the radical call is found in the way of going to people and not saying you for me, but me for you. And going to people who, you, who have nothing and offering them everything. See, you have a choice with uh, who you come in contact with. In your family and outside your family. Them for you or you for me. And everyone in Southern California works on this basic principle of the human heart to say you for me. Now some of us go, no, well not me. I don't treat people that way. Uh, I'm pretty kind. How many of you have a hard time living with people who are angry with you or uh, on bad terms with you? I mean, almost all of us. Do you know why? Here's why we can't live with people who are angry with us and uncomfortable, or excuse me, uh, disgruntled with us, is because what we need in order to have an identity is approval. And we need people to be happy. And we need people to be pleased. 
and we need people to be okay in order for us to be us. And when someone's angry with you, they're blocking those feelings and they're taking away your sense of identity. And what you have to admit is that in order to be an, to get an identity and to get a sense of self, we use people even for their own feelings of being happy and being content and being at peace for us to get who we are. And the human heart, whichever avenue you want to chase it, always can find a way to say you for me. And Jesus says, the way of the kingdom is to come into a dinner table with people who have nothing and say, it's not you for me, it's me for you. And you know, even in 2019, we have to talk about this because um, we still have found a way to go find poor, decrepit, lame, hurting people and find a way to go for them for me. You know, I mean, we go on these short-term mission trips. And, uh, you know, you've seen this where you go for a week to Jamaica and um, you help build a house, which just means you dug a hole and uh, you take a picture with somebody who doesn't have as much human resources as you then you put it on Facebook and declare your life has changed, but your life hasn't changed and you really haven't helped those people that much. Um, this text is pushing us way further than that. Way further than making people a, a Saturday project. But pushing you to people who do nothing for you, who can't improve your social status, who sometimes you define as draining in life. And not just saying, go serve them one day a week, but bring them into your lifestyle. Look, how many people are you living life alongside of that do nothing for you? In fact, they don't just help your life, they drain your life. Because the way of the kingdom is to move towards people who, I, I'll use this phrase, suck life out of you. Because you're following a king and following a savior who walked to a cross to have his life sucked out of him for a people who would have nothing to do with him when he died. This is the amazing thing about Good Friday is that no one was there saying, how amazing is this? Jesus is serving all of us. No, no one was there thinking that the world is changing here. Because what the way of the kingdom is is a, a serving unto dying with no one watching to people who can do nothing for you. I'll tell you about a woman who did this. Her name was Edith Taylor. Uh, Edith lived in Waltham, Massachusetts with her husband, Carl. And Carl, uh, struggling to find work, uh, moved to Japan so that he could find a job. About six months after living there, he wrote his wife and children a letter that said, there's no e easy way to tell you this, but you and I are no longer married. I've met another woman, and she and I are to be betrothed next month. So Edith wrote back and said, if your love is gone, our love is still as strong. Please write for the sake of the kids. So Carl wrote, and they kept in contact. Several years later, Carl wrote and said, I'm dying of cancer. Please send money to help. Edith took a second job, began to send money and help. 
Carl wrote back and said, I will probably be dead in the next two months. Would you please consider taking my Japanese children that I've had with this other woman? Edith wrote back and said, send the kids and send your wife. And what the article said is all the way through the 80s, as best you can understand, is that you could go to Waltham, Massachusetts and meet Edith Taylor and her American kids that she had with this man, Carl, her newly adopted Japanese-American kids that had come from her other spouse and Carl's widowed ex-wife. That's a woman who has found the way of Jesus. It's a radical call. That's the way of the call. So thirdly and finally, how in the world do we embrace that call with joy and with hope? Because what Jesus says in verse 27 is he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I'll just admit to you as a pastor how much I, I hated that verse for years and thought it was just uh, this new angle on Christianity where Jesus said, look, I love you, I forgive you, uh, it's all by grace, except this last thing where you've got to grit your teeth, work really hard, buck up and, and, and follow me. But I, I just don't think that's what Jesus is saying anymore. I think he's giving us a very gracious and freeing and kind call to leave the burdens of this world and to live in a way, in a path of freedom that actually remakes our humanity and remakes this world in a beautiful way. But in order to follow that and find it gracious, uh, I think we've got to observe these three things. That, that it's, it's gracious and it's hopeful because uh, in the call to lose your life and find Him, there's internal riches, there's a future inheritance, and there's just a gracious invitation in this. Um, what I mean, internal riches. Look, Jesus says, you've you got to give precedence to me over everything. You've got to make me a priority in, in every resource and aspect and relationship of your life. And the real principle of life is we only give things up when we feel rich. C.S. Lewis, in his commentary on this passage, he says, look, Jesus would never ask you to give something up that would make you richer. He's only asking you to give up what you think is rich, which he, which he calls poverty. He's only asking you into slavery, excuse me, into freedom, with what you think is free, freedom, but is actually slavery. See, what riches and freedom are, they're always relative terms. I mean, you may not feel rich, but you're significantly rich to about 89% of the world. And what riches are is an evaluation and a concrete grabbing on to who you are and what you have been given. And a Christian on this side of Easter has been given more than you could possibly ever fathom. Because look at what you really want in life and look at what riches you think give you. Let's just say, for example, you want the riches of the Southern, Cali Southern California life. Why, why do you want what you want? A lot of us want what we want because we think, well, I want this for my children. I want them to have these opportunities. I want them to have these things. Well, why do you want that? 
You want that because you want to feel like a good parent. Well, why do you want to feel like a good parent? We often want to feel like a good parent because we want a sense of self that we can grab onto that knows I'm, I'm, I'm not a loser. I've done valid things in this world. I've made people happy. I've given them something. And look, what we want behind that is because we want to be affirmed. We want to be adored. But the path of that lifestyle, the path of the riches of the world lifestyle, look, it's always volatile. We never feel like we have enough. We never feel contentment. And so we can't ever give anything away. Epictetus, he said, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. And what the pursuit of riches in our lifestyle here has told us is that our pursuit of riches has only increased our wants. But the riches of the kingdom are never meant to aggravate your wants, but to appease them. And to realize you only want one thing, the love of God. Psalm 136, it says the love of God will never, ever end. There's a place in 1 Peter 1 where Peter says, um, you know, the whole Old Testament is really a, a foreshadowing of the gospel. That when the prophets were writing, uh, they weren't just writing about the things that were happening to Israel, but they were writing about the coming Christ and the fact that He would be the gracious work of Jesus. And then he throws this phrase on the end of it that says, even angels long to look at these things. And, and the word he uses there is angels are obsessed with the way God saved the world. Now why? If you think about angels... Angels are uh, magnificent, uh, amazing beings. Um, every time they show up in the Bible, the first words are fear not, which means they're sort of probably terrifying to look at. Uh, but they're, they're, they're angelic, they're glorious, uh, they're immutable, they're eternal. And we also know is that the one time that they rebel against God, that's it. They're thrown out of His presence. And there is no plan of redemption for them. And so they look at us. And we look at God day after day and moment after moment and say, no, 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 no. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. And God's arms are open. His forgiveness is open. His grace is available all over and over and over and over again. To us, we have, to us, God looks at us and says, though you're my enemy, my grace is available. And angels go, what is it like to be loved like that? See, they look at what you have and they say, how in the world can you be loved like that? Do you know, what, do you know why you're loved like that? It's because you are in the image of God and they are not. And they think you have a rich, a riches that's worth obsessing over. And everything Jesus calls you to, to forego and walk away from in this world is so that you can have more increased internal riches. You have internal riches. You have, secondly, a future inheritance. He says in verse 14, you'll be blessed because you cannot be, they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, what does he mean there? In a word, this. That the way that the Jewish world looked at the resurrection is that uh, when, when God would come in return, 
He would make everything right. And that it doesn't just mean um, that debts are canceled and repaid, but that everything that went unnoticed will finally get the glory that it deserves. And everything that the world has found favorable and has found glorious, that the Bible says that's not glorious, that you should be suspicious of, will finally be exposed for its fraudulent nature. And that there will be a moment when everything the Bible calls worthy of being exalted will be exalted. And everything Jesus says will be humbled, that's exalted in this world, will finally be humbled. And everything that you give yourself to in this world that's at the expense of the kingdom of God will have a day where it's finally exposed. And you'll see the fraudulent things that you spent your life on, but all the things that you invested your soul and your time and your resources that nobody here knows about, that nobody here recognizes, that nobody in your community will ever put on a documentary, will ever put on a website, will ever put in the newspaper, will finally show up on that day and it will sing in the choir of angels and a crown of glory forever so that everything in this world will finally be made right and you'll realize all the things that you gave up will only feel like one inconvenient night in a bad hotel. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just before he died, he said, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. And you know that when you begin to invest your life and put yourself around people in this world and follow the resurrection to know this has to be true or my life is foolish. Or I'm not getting paid back for that. Are you investing your life in anything right now? That if the resurrection is not true, you're a fool. Because the stamp on history that we preached about and sang about last week is a guarantee that everything you lose out on this world will come back a hundredfold. You know, from the point of the resurrection and Easter, here's, this is the only thing you can miss out on in life. This is it. Not living every day like the best is yet to come. That's the, that's the only thing that you can miss out on in this world. And if you know that future inheritance, you know that's what's coming, then that means everything in this life is just only the title and cover page and you're free to throw it all away for Him and the kingdom. If you know that you have internal riches, a future inheritance, and lastly, a gracious invitation. Because Jesus is telling this parable to a man who's at a dinner party working his way up and he doesn't understand how to follow Him. And so in verse 15, it says, when, those, when one of those who reclined at the table heard Jesus talking about this, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he's sort of thinking, yes, Jesus, uh, let's, let's do it the way where the, the more we do, the more you love us. And he doesn't get it. And so Jesus begins to tell another parable. And the only people who respond to the wedding banquet are the losers of this world who have nothing. And so the master says, hey, there's still room. And Jesus says, go compel them to come in. The Greek word there is to drive them in. Go get them to come in. And it says no one came in. 
And the, the, the principle and the teaching is this. Jesus will do whatever it takes for you to come in. And the only thing that you need to come in is nothing. See, some of us hear this teaching and think, is the, does the kingdom work like the more I give up, the more open God's arms get? No. He's driving you in with nothing because He paid everything. Do you understand that the invitation of the kingdom is for you to have nothing? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this, he says, no one has nothing. If you've ever been in New York City when you're driving, uh, looking for a parking place, and then there's a parking place, and you go, you don't go, yes, it's a parking place. You go, whoa, why is no one parked there? Like there's got to be a catch. You know, there's, there's got to be a sign. Like no parking here. Uh, there's got to be some, somebody knows something that I don't know. When you hear the gracious invitation of the kingdom that says this is in no way contingent upon how much you give up and how much you do for Him, but it's 100% built on and offered in the atoning, sufficient, final work of Easter, most of us go, that's too good to be true. And what Jesus is saying, I know you think it's too good to be true, so I'm going to go out and drive and compel and bring you in, not with guilt, not with shame, but with my love. Do you know if you do nothing for this this week, He will still love you? Do you know if you do nothing for this this week, He will give you communion next week? You know, if you do nothing, and you give up nothing in this world for Him, and you are still found in Him, you will meet Him at the resurrection with open arms. And He will still be there. Unashamed to call you child. Look, if you know the internal riches, the future inheritance, and the gracious invitation, then you can finally begin to sing this hymn and make it your life. Jesus, I my cross have taken. All to leave and follow Thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Make that prayer your church. Go live that in Orange County. Make Easter true. Let me pray for us. Father, um, look, when you came out of the grave, we don't just want to sing about it. We want to live by putting our life in the stream of the kingdom. And uh, to, to breathe and to live and to ooze uh, your love and your, your values that reverse the trends of this world. Well, would you enable us, Lord, uh, by the power of your Spirit to come and die that we may live and follow the way of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.